One of the things that we enjoyed doing as a family when we were living in England was the opportunity to take road trips across the Channel to continental Europe. Northern France has many charming little towns that we love to visit. And each time we make the trip, somewhere by an hour after we've crossed the border, when we're on one of those French motorways, uh, from the back seat of our cars, one of the kids would invariably ask, are we there yet? <coughs> are we there yet? And at this juncture of our study of 2 Samuel, having just spent seven months going through 1 Samuel, which we finished two weeks ago, you may also be asking, are we there yet? Well, the answer really is, it, it depends. It depends on where is the there that we're meant to be. If you're there, it's when we will finish 2 Samuel. Well, the book of 2 Samuel has 24 chapters. We are in chapter 2. You do the math. And so it's probably sometime in July this year. So no, we're not quite there yet. But if you're there, it's about the main point of the book of 2 Samuel. We're almost there. Last week, you remember, we were reminded of the theme of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel is about a covenant God who makes covenant promises to a covenant king through whom he will preserve his covenant people. And I think that's right. And on that basis, we're almost there. Because we'll find in our chapter today, for the first time, all the elements of that theme coming together. And in fact, I'll make a bigger claim than that. I think our chapter today, and for the next few to come, marks an important peak in God's salvation history with the root of the food of the mountain going all the way back to Genesis. Well, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's come back to our chapter. But first, the background. If you remember the sermon last week, we're now at a point of the story where Saul is dead. David grieved over his death and the death of Jonathan. He has executed the Amalekite who brought the news of Saul's death to him and claimed to have killed Saul. He was obviously hoping for a reward. And he got one, just not the one that he expected. And David, he composed a lament that eulogizes Saul and Jonathan. By all this, as Keith reminded us, David showed us the character of God's covenant king. Well, let's turn to our passage this morning, but before we look at verse 1, it's interesting to note how 1 Chronicles, which is a, a few books from 2 Samuel, it also records the history of Israel during this period. And it's interesting to see how he records the death of Saul. You can turn to page 319, 319 from your Bible if you're interested to follow on. But let me read from 1 Chronicles chapter 10, verses 13 and 14. 1 Chronicles chapter 10, verses 13 and 14. So Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord and also consulted the medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord and therefore the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. According to 1 Chronicles, Saul did not seek guidance from the, de- from the Lord and that's one of the main reasons God put him to death. And what does David do in this first verse of chapter 2 of 2 Samuel? Right after the chapter about Saul's death, we read, And after this, David inquired of the Lord, 
shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? David inquired of the Lord. And that's the difference between Saul and David. You see, Saul, or rather David was at this point weighing his options. It's probably safe right now to go into Judah. Go back there because Saul is dead. He won't be pursuing him. And as the anointed one, it made sense for him to return to claim his throne. And as obvious as that sounds, David inquires of the Lord before he makes his move. And the Lord said to him, go up. And then David followed with the second question, which city in Judah? To Hebron, God said. Well, a bit of a geography lesson here, but Hebron is, was situated in the middle of the hill country of Judah, in one of the highest areas of the region. Abraham dwelt there, and the patriarchs and the matriarchs were all buried there. And when Moses sent spies to explore the hill country, they went to Hebron. And so symbolically, it would have been a good place for David to set up his kingdom. It was also one of those places where after defeating the Amalekites a few chapters ago, we read in 1 Samuel chapter 30, when David came to Ziglag, he sent part of the spoils to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, here is a present for you from the spoils of the enemies of the Lord. And so we know that the elders of Judah were considered his friends. They were friendly to him. It also helps that both David's wives came from that area. And in fact, David himself was anointed and he fought Goliath in Judah, not too far away from Hebron. And so going to Hebron was a logical choice. But nevertheless, David inquired of the Lord. Unlike Saul, David was looking always to God for guidance, listening to God, obeying Him. And so David went up to the towns of Hebron with his family and brought all his men and his, their families to there to live there. And in verse 4, we are told that the men of Judah came to anoint David as king. Now, it's pretty easy for us just to read past this verse, but we do need to pause here and recognize the significance of this verse because David is now king. And we've been waiting for this moment for a long time, haven't we? This is the moment in 1 Samuel 23 that Jonathan pointed to in his last conversation with David when he went to encourage David in the wilderness in Horash. If you remember, he said, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, will not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. This is a moment in 1 Samuel 16, when David's name first appeared in the Bible. The Lord told the prophet Samuel to go to Bethlehem to anoint a son of Jesse. And when each one of Jesse's sons walked past Samuel, the Lord did not choose any one of them. And then Samuel asked Jesse, are, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. This is the moment in 1 Samuel 15, when Samuel told Saul, after he had disobeyed God, God's command to devote to destruction the Amalekites. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day 
and has given it to a neighbor of yours who's better than you. That neighbor was David. And even further back, all the way back, this is the moment in Genesis chapter 49, when Jacob blesses his son, Judah, and said, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. The king shall come from Judah, and David is to be that king. And even before that, this is the moment in Genesis 17, when God promised Abraham and Sarah that they would become parents of nations and kings will come from them. And so David becoming king is a big deal. It's fulfilling a lot of prophecies in the Old Testament. In God's salvation history, David will start the line of kings that God promised Abraham, and it will come from the tribe of Judah, as prophesied by Jacob. David is the one of whom the Lord says is a man after his own heart, a man whom God has chosen according to his own will and purpose. He will be the covenant king, from whom the covenant king, Jesus Christ, will come. And that's why the first verse of the first chapter of the Gospel of Matthew starts off with the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. David and his reign will reveal the kingdom that God will finally establish. And the kingdom that Jesus came to announce, to inaugurate and finally establish, that is the kingdom that David's kingdom was introducing to the world. John Calvin puts it this way, the earthly reign of David is a token in which we must contemplate the reign of our Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation of his church to the end of the world. And this is why David being king is such a big deal. Because here the kingdom of God becomes visible for the first time in the world for those who have eyes to see. And so this morning when we read verse 4 of the chapter, And the man of Judah came and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah, we can say we're almost there. We can almost see the summit of this mountain. Almost. Because at this point, David is king only over Judah. He's not yet king over the whole of Israel. And to see the summit of this mountain, we'll have to wait till chapter 5 when David is made king over all of Israel. But even then, that mountain is a mere foreshadowing of the greatest and the highest mountain to come when Jesus comes to establish his kingdom. And that's what David's kingdom is all about, pointing us to Jesus' kingdom and showing us what it looked like. And here, in these few verses at the start of chapter 2, we get to see the king of this kingdom, God's covenant king, and his character. He's always looking to God, listening to Him, obeying Him. Moving on, our narrative brings us to the man of Jabesh-Gilead in verse 4b. You need to understand that Jabesh-Gilead is the heartland of support for the house of Saul. The people of Jabesh-Gilead have never forgotten how Saul saved them from the Ammonites years ago. Uh, if you remember, we read that, read that in 1 Samuel 11. 
And so they were willing to risk their lives to honor Saul's body. They were Saul's staunchest supporters. And if Saul were the whole political rally, you can expect a whole town of Jabesh Gilead to show up. It would be hard to find a more devoted group of people supporting Saul. And so you can expect that if David were an enemy of Saul, that David would be their enemy as well. And so what was the first recorded act of David when he became king of Judah? David held out an olive branch to Jabesh Gilead. When David found out that a man from Jabesh Gilead had taken the body of Saul and his sons from the Philistines and, and brought it back to Jabesh, he sent his messengers to, to them to thank them for what they did. And he praised them for their kindness towards Saul. And he blessed them, asking God to show them his steadfast love and faithfulness. And then in verse 6b, he said, And I will do this good to you. As one commentator pointed out, the ESV Bible unhelpfully leaves out the word this. When David says, uh, and I will do this good to you, what he's saying actually is that he was to be the one through whom the Lord would bless Jabesh Gilead and show his steadfast love and faithfulness to them. I'm the one who will do this good to you. David wants the people of Jabesh Gilead to know that he is God's covenant king and he's making it clear to them that God's goodness towards them will come through him, the covenant king. And then David encourages the man of Jabesh Gilead to let your hands be strong and be valiant because they're needed. Because they've just lost a major battle with the Philistines while still not too far away. And who would be extremely unhappy when they find out that it was the man of Jabesh Gilead who stole the bodies of Saul and his sons from them. And with that, David extends his invitation to them to shift their allegiance to him. Now that Saul is dead, and David is now the king over Judah. And by his message to the men of Jabesh Gilead, David is also making the point that no one who was loyal to Saul previously would suffer under David. Now reflect over this brief episode for a moment. Does it just remind you of the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 6, verses 27-28? But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Well, we don't know the response of the people of Jabesh Gilead to David's message. It's not recorded for us. But through this little episode, we once again, we get a glimpse again of what the character of the covenant king is like. We now move on to verse 8, and we read, But Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead and Asherites and, and Jeshua and, and Ephraim and, and Benjamin and all Israel. Now you may be asking, what's going on here? Why is this happening? We would have hoped that after Saul's death, that things will start to get better with David as king. And doesn't Abner know that David is the one that Samuel had anointed as king over Israel after Saul? You kind of almost wish that the book of 2 Samuel would go the way of 1 Chronicles. Because in 1 Chronicles, again, right after recording the death of Saul in chapter 10, chapter 11 starts off with these words. 
Then all Israel gathered together to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, even when Saul was king, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord your God said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over my people Israel. And so all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel, according to the word of the Lord by Samuel. Now, wouldn't that be just neat? I mean, none of this two kings, two kingdoms business, and all united under one king, David. But unfortunately, the world doesn't always work this way. Because now there's a political vacuum in the north, and Abner, who is also Saul's cousin, decides to act. Which means that David the king will be opposed. There will be those who will not want to come under the rule of God's covenant king. Well, it's clear who's holding power in the north. Abner is effectively the kingmaker here. He took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and, and made him king over Israel in the north. And with Saul's death, it would be easy to sell the story that Saul's son was the legitimate successor to the throne rather than the enemy, David. But Ishbosheth's reign would be short lived, only two years. And so the scene is set. Israel will be divided with Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And before long, civil war will ensue. And the first act of provocation came with Abner moving his army towards the Judean border. And this was met with a response from Joab, who is David's nephew and, and commander of his army. And you have two armies facing each other, separated by the pool of Gibeon. And at Abner's suggestion, both sides agreed to resolve the standoff by a representative hand-to-hand -hand combat, similar to the time when David met Goliath, both representing their respective armies. Except that this time round, they will have 12 men on each side. But instead of a decisive win on one side, the contest ended in a draw with 24 corpses. And with that, the battle was joined. Two armies fought fiercely, but this time, the verdict was clear. The narrator tells us, and Abner and the men of Israel were bitten before the servants of David. David's army was victorious. We are spared many of the details of the battle, but one particular incident was highlighted to set a stage for developments in our next chapter. And this incident was between Abner and one of Joab's brothers, Asahel. Uh, the three brothers, Joab, Abishah, and Asahel. And Asahel had decided to pursue Abner in the battle. And he was fast, he was very focused, but he was no match for Abner. And Abner knew this. And so he called out to Asahel twice to give up his chase, but Asahel refused. And so Abner thrust the butt of his spear into Asahel's stomach. It was a powerful blow, strong enough for the spear to come out of his back. And Asahel died on the spot. And it was such a gruesome scene that all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. While they recognized Asahel, they knew his family, 
and they just realize that things have just gotten from bad to worse. Why? Because it's now become personal. And true enough, Joab and his other brother Abishai now continue with the pursuit of Abner. And by sunset, they caught up with Abner at the top of the hill of Ammah. And here we are told the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group and took their stand on the top of the hill. And Abner is now surrounded by his men on the top of the hill, just as Joab and Abishah reached the top. And it would appear that both Joab and Abishah were largely on their own, perhaps they've gone ahead of the troops. And so the two were possibly outnumbered. But on Abner's part, he was not keen on another bloodshed, and so he called for a truce. And Joab agreed, and the fighting ceased. But both sides then returned to their respective homes, Abner to Mahanaim, and Joab to Hebron. And the body count, 360 men dead from Abner's side, against 20 men dead from Joab's side. A clear victory for Joab. And our passage this morning ends with the summary verse in 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. The war between the house of Saul and the house of David was not settled in a single battle, in a single day at Gibeon. It was much longer than that, and there were many more battles. But what is clear is that until all of Israel came under the rule of David, there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David. You see, the kingdom established by God would be opposed by the kingdom established by man. But what is equally clear is that in the final analysis, King David and his people can have the confidence that the kingdom established by God will prevail and as such, God's people can prevail with hope. Let me conclude. 6th of June, 1944. Perhaps not a date that readily comes to mind. But for you history buffs out there, that was D-Day, landing on the beaches of Normandy. And we will celebrate the 75th anniversary this year. It was then the largest seaborne invasion in history. And the success of that landing was significant because it allowed the Allied forces to start their invasion of German-occupied Western Europe during World War II. And the moment the landing was successfully completed, the fate of the German forces was sealed. Victory in Europe was just a matter of time. Indeed, VE Day, or Victory in Europe Day would come a year later on 8th of May 1945. But in that one year between D-Day, landing on Normandy, and VE Day, we also witnessed some of the fiercest battles as the German forces held on stubbornly. We had, for instance, the Battle of the Bouch, which saw over 200,000 people killed or wounded. Now what we're witnessing here in Chapter 2 of 2 Samuel is in a sense similar to the period between D-Day and V-E-Day. David is now king of Judah, and he knows he will one day be king over all Israel. But until that time, there will continue to be conflict. What then is David to do? 
And I think our passage this morning provides a guide to the answer. While David waits for the day when he becomes king over all of Israel, he will continue to exhibit the character of God's king. He will look to God, seeking his guidance and obeying his commands. He will love his enemies, doing good to those who hate him and blessing those who curse him. He will prevail with hope, knowing that the victory is already won. We today, in the 21st century, we too are living between D-Day and V-E-Day. Jesus has already come 2,000 years ago, and with his life, death, and resurrection, he has already announced, inaugurated, and established his kingdom. That was the first advent. That was D-Day. And as a result of that, Jesus is now king over all those who are called his disciples. All of us who have confessed our sins and repented and are following Jesus. But there are many who still oppose him today. Many who will not call him king. And spiritual battles are still being waged each day. We're all now waiting for his second advent, VE Day, which is not yet here. But we are certain it will come. And when it comes, this second time round, Jesus will come to judge and to reign over the whole universe. And when that happens, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and King. We will all recognize his kingship, including those who oppose him today. And until that time, until that day, God will continue to establish and extend his kingdom here on earth. And so we have a choice today. Will we now call Jesus King and enter into his kingdom? Or will we wait till Jesus comes again to judge when it is too late? For those of us who already call Jesus King, for those of us who follow Jesus, what are we doing as we wait for the second advent? Like David, are we daily looking to God, loving our enemies, and prevailing with hope? In the, Father, in the name of Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.